Chapter One of the Life and Adventures of Kit Carson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Life and Adventures of Kit Carson by DeWitt C. Peters. Section One, Chapter One Carson's Birthplace his emigration to missouri early prospects is an apprentice stories of the rocky mountains he enlists to go there adventures on the prairies broaders is wounded carson's nerve put to the test rude amputation safe arrival at santa fe goes to taos and learns the spanish language early vicissitudes disappointment and attempt to return to missouri is employed as an interpreter teamster etc it is now a well-established fact that no state in the american union has given birth to so many distinguished pioneers and explorers of its boundless territories as the commonwealth of kentucky an author whose task is to tell of a hero his bravery endurance privations integrity self-denial and deeds of daring carries the morale with which to gain at once for these characteristics the assent of the reader by the simple assertion my hero was born a kentuckian indeed in america to be a native of the state of kentucky is to inherit all the attributes of a brave man a safe counsellor and a true friend it is at least certain that this state whether the fact is due to its inland and salubrious climate or to its habits of physical training has added many a hero unto humanity christopher carson by his countrymen familiarly known kit carson was born in the county of madison state of kentucky on the twenty-fourth day of december eighteen o nine the carson family were among the first settlers of kentucky and became owners of fine farms besides being an industrious and skilful farmer the father of kit carson was a celebrated hunter when the indians of kentucky became quieted down putting an end to the calls upon his courage and skill as a woodsman he settled into a simple respectable farmer this monotonous life did not suit his disposition and as the tide of emigration into the wilds of missouri was then commencing where both game and the red man still roamed he resolved to migrate in that direction it was only one year after the birth of his son christopher that mr carson sold his estate in kentucky and established himself with his large family in that part of the state of missouri now known as howard county at this time howard county missouri was a wilderness on a remote american frontier at his new home the father was in his element his reputation of carrying an unerring rifle and always enacting the deeds of a brave man was not long in following him into the wilderness mr carson's only assistant on his first arrival in howard county was his eldest son moses carson who was afterwards settled in the state of california where he resided twenty-five years before the great california gold discovery was made for two or three years after arriving at their new home the carson family with a few neighbors lived in a picketed log fort and when they were engaged in agricultural pursuits working their farms and so forth it was necessary to plough sow and reap under guard 
men being stationed at the sides and extremities of their fields to prevent the working party from being surprised and massacred by wild and hostile savages who infested the country at this time the smallpox that disease which has proved such a terrible scourge to the indian had but seldom visited him footnote this disease has probably been the worst enemy with which the red man of america has had to contend by terrible experience he has become familiarized with its ravages and has resorted to the most desperate remedies for its cure among many tribes the afflicted are obliged to form camps by themselves and thus left alone they die by scores one of their favorite remedies when the scourge first makes its appearance is to plunge into the nearest river by which they think to purify themselves this course however in reality tends to shorten their existence when the smallpox rages among the aborigines a most unenviable position is held by their medicine man he is obliged to give a strict account of himself and if so unfortunate as to lose a chief or other great personage is sure to pay the penalty by parting with his own life the duties of the medicine man among the indians are so mixed up with witchcraft and jugglery so filled with the pretence of savage quackery so completely rude and unfounded as to principle that it is impossible to define the practice for any useful end about five years since a young gentleman of scientific habits who was attached to an exploring party accidentally became separated from his companions in his wanderings he fell in with a band of hostile sioux indians who would quickly have dispatched him had he not succeeded immediately in convincing them of his wonderful powers it so happened that this gentleman was well informed in the theory of vaccination and it struck him that by impressing on the savages his skill he might extricate himself by the aid of signs a lancet and some virus he set himself to work and soon saw that he had gained a reputation which saved him his scalp he first vaccinated his own arm after which all of the indians present solicited his magic touch to save them from the loathsome disease the result was that he found he had enlisted himself in an active practice after a few days the indians were delighted with the results and began to look upon their prisoner as possessed of superhuman knowledge they feared to do him any injury and finally resolved to let him go of which privilege it is almost unnecessary to say he was delighted to avail himself and was not long in finding his friends End of footnote. the incidents which enliven and add interest to the historic page have proved of spontaneous and vigorous growth in the new settlements of america nearly every book which deals with the early planting and progress of the american colonists and pioneers contains full and frequently glowing descriptions of exploits in the forest strifes of the hunter fights with the savages fearful and terrible surprises of lurking warriors as they arouse the brave settler and his family from their midnight dreams by the wild death-announcing war-whoop hair-breadth escapes from the larger kinds of game boldly bearded in the lair the manly courage which never yields but surmounts every obstacle presented by the unbroken and boundless forest all these are subjects and facts which have already so many counterparts in book thought accessible to the general reader 
that their details may be safely omitted during the boyhood days of young Carson. It is better, therefore, to pass over the youthful period of his eventful life, until he began to ripen into manhood. Kit Carson, at fifteen years of age, was no ordinary person. He had, at this early age, earned, and well earned, a reputation on the basis of which the prediction was ventured in his behalf, that he would not fail to make and leave a mark upon the hearts of his countrymen. Those who knew him at the age of fifteen hesitated not to say, Kit Carson is the boy who will grow into a man of influence and renown. The chief points of his character, which elicited this prediction, were thus early clearly marked. Some of his traits were kindness and good qualities of heart, determined perseverance, indomitable will, unflinching courage, great quickness and shrewdness of perception, and promptitude in execution. The predictions uttered by the hardy rangers of the forest concerning a boy like Carson are seldom at fault, and Kit was one who, by many a youthful feat worthy the muscle of riper years, had endeared himself to their honest love. It was among such men, and for such reason, that Kit Carson thus early in life had won the influence and rewards of a general favourite. His frame was slight, below the medium stature, closely knit together, and endowed with extraordinary elasticity. He had, even then, stood the test of much hard usage. What the body lacked in strength was more than compensated for by his indomitable will. Consequently, at this early age, he was considered capable of performing a frontier man's work, both in tilling the soil and handling the rifle. It was at this period of his eventful life that his father, acting partially under the advice of friends, determined that his son Kit should learn a trade. A few miles from Kit's forest home, there lived a Mr. David Workman, a saddler. To him he was apprenticed. With Mr. Workman, young Carson remained two years, enjoying both the confidence and respect of his employer. But, mourning over the awl, the hide of new leather, the buckle and strap, for the glorious shade of the mighty forest, the wild battle with buffalo and bear, the crack of the unerring rifle pointed at the trembling deer. Saddlery is an honourable employment, but saddlery never made a greater mistake than when it strove to hitch to its traces the bold impulse, the wild yearning, the sinewy muscle of Kit Carson. Harness-making was so irksome to his ardent temperament and brave heart that he resolved to take advantage of the first favourable opportunity and quit it for ever. With him, to resolve has ever been followed by action. During the latter part of his stay with Mr. Workman, many stories of adventures in the Rocky Mountains reached the ear of the youthful Kentuckian in his Missouri home. The almost miraculous hyperbole which flavoured the narratives were not long in awakening in his breast a strong desire to share in such stirring events. The venturesome mind at last became inspired. He determined to go and, giving his restless spirit full sway, in 1826 joined a party bound for his boyish fancy pictures of the Elysian Fields. The leader of this expedition required no second request from young Carson before enrolling his name on the company list. The hardy woodsman saw stamped upon the frank and open countenance of the boy who stood before him those sterling qualities which have since made his name a household word. 
these formed a passport which on the spot awakened the respect and unlocked the hearts of those whose companionship he sought the work of preparation was now commenced by the different parties to the expedition all of the arrangements having been finally completed the bold and hardy band soon started upon their journey their route lay over the vast and then unexplored territory bounded by the rocky mountains on one side and the missouri river on the other before them lay stretched out in almost never-ending space those great prairies the half of which are still unknown to the white man crossing the plains in eighteen twenty six was an entirely different feat from what it is at this day where then were the published guides where were the charts indicating the eligible camping grounds with their springs of pure water these oases of the american sahara were not yet acquainted with the white man's foot the herds of buffaloes the droves of wild horses knew not the crack of the white man's rifle they had fled only at the approach of the native indian warrior and the yearly fires of the prairie it was a difficult task to find a man who had gazed on the lofty peaks of the mountain ranges which formed a serpentine division of the vast american territories or who had drunk the waters at the camping places on the prairies the traveller at that day was in every force of meaning which the word extends literally an explorer whose chosen object was the task of a hero the indians themselves could give no information of the route beyond the confined limits of their hunting ranges the path which this pioneer party entered was existent only in the imagination of the bookmaking geographer about as accurate and useful from its detail as the route of baron munchausen to the icelands of the north pole on the back of his eagle the whole expanse of the rolling prairie to those brave hearts was one boundless uncertainty this language may possibly be pronounced redundant it may be in phrase it is not in fact the carpet knight the holiday ranger the bookworm explorer knows but little of the herculean work which has furnished for the world a practical knowledge of the western half of the north american continent we shall see in the progress of this work whether the adventures of kit carson entitle him to a place in the heart of the american nation on the same shelf with his compeers in that day the fierce red man chief scoured the broad prairies a petty king in his tribe a ruler of his wild domain bold haughty cautious wily unrelenting revengeful he led his impassioned warriors in the chase and to battle even today the lurking indian foeman is no mean adversary to be laughed and brushed out of the way notwithstanding disease war assassination and necessary chastisement have united rapidly to decimate his race thereby gradually lessening its power thirty years ago the rolling plains were alive with them and their numbers alone made them formidable it is not strange that the untutored savages of the prairie like those of their race who hailed with ungovernable curiosity the landing of the pilgrims on plymouth rock should have been attracted by the wonderful inventions of the white man intruder a very short period of time served to turn this ungovernable curiosity into troublesome thieving knowing no law but their wild traditionary rules they wrested from the adventurous pioneer his rifle knife axe wagon harness horse powder ball flint watch 
compass, cooking utensils, and so forth. The result was sanguinary engagements ensued, which led to bitter hostility between the two races. Doubtless the opinion may be controverted, but it nevertheless shall be hazarded that, until the weaker party shall be exterminated by the stronger, the wild war-whoop, with its keen-edged knife and death-dealing rifle accompaniments, will continue from time to time to palsy the nerve and arouse the courage of the pioneer white man. The Indian, in his attack, no longer showers cloth-yard arrows upon his foe. He has learned to kill his adversary with the voice of thunder and the unseen bullet. The bold traveller, whose pathway lies over those great high-roads which lead to the Pacific, must still watch for the red man's ambush by day, and by night sleep under the protecting vigilance of the faithful, quick-sighted sentinel. The savage never forgives his own or his ancestor's foe. Every generation of them learns from tradition the trials and exploits of its tribe. From earliest boyhood, these form the burden of their education in history, and, on performing the feat of courage or strength which admits them to the counsels of the braves, their nation's wrongs are uppermost in their thoughts, causing them to thirst for a revenge which sooner or later gives them a grave, making themselves in turn an object of revenge. It has already appeared that when Kit Carson entered upon his first expedition, game was to be had in abundance. His route lay across the western wilds to Santa Fe. All this distance, the bulk of provisions, consisting of a small quantity of flour and bacon, had to be transported by himself and his companions. These articles were kept as a reserve, and were looked upon as luxuries, for that man was estimated to be a very poor shot who could not obtain with his rifle all the animal food he required for his individual sustenance. These hunters, however, well understood the laws which govern, and the advantages which follow division of labour. Everything was so arranged, both for this and subsequent expeditions, by which a regular hunter was appointed, and each man assigned some particular duty according to his capacity. These appointments were usually made by the leader of the party, whose supervision was acknowledged by general consent on account of his known experience and capability. This plan was the more necessary in order to avoid confusion. The caravan had hardly launched out on its long and tedious tramp when an accident occurred which came very near proving serious in its results. For several days the men had been greatly annoyed by wolves, who appeared more than usually ravenous and bold. Footnote. There are two species of these animals found on the western prairie. One is small, called the jackal, the other much larger. The latter, or larger species, are found of various colours, but more frequently grey. The colour, however, varies with the season and often from other causes. Many of their habits are strikingly similar to those of the domestic dog, with the simple difference that the wolf's is unreclaimed from his wild state. The connecting link between the prairie wolf and the domestic dog is the cur found among the Indians. The Indian cur, by a casual observer, could be easily mistaken for a prairie wolf. Near the Rocky Mountains, and in them, these animals are found of immense size, but, being cowardly, they are not dangerous. The first night a person sleeps on a prairie is ever afterwards vividly impressed upon his memory. The serenade of the wolves, with which he is honoured, is apt to be distinctly remembered. It is far from agreeable, and seldom fails to awaken unpleasant forebodings concerning the future. 
and the idea that these fellows may be soon clearing his bones is not very genial to the fancy. To the wolf, the graveyard is anything but consecrated ground, and if a person is very chary of his cadaver, he had better not leave it on the western plains. The wolf is quite choice in his viands whenever the opportunity offers, and will at any time leave the carcass of an Indian for that of a white man. Old frontiersmen, speaking of the wolves, usually style them as their dogs, and after a night when these animals have kept up an incessant barking, they will express wonder by asking what has been disturbing their hounds. The flesh of the mountain wolf, when cooked, has something of the smell and taste of mutton, but it is very rank. End of footnote. In order to frighten the wolves, the teamsters would occasionally shoot them. One of the members of the expedition was obliged to take a fresh rifle from a wagon. In taking the gun out, the hammer of the lock caught against some projecting object, which caused it to be partially set. Having become freed, however, before it was fully set, it came down and fired the gun. The contents of the barrel were sent through the man's arm. No member of the expedition was conversant with surgical knowledge. Here was an occasion to shake the nerves of any feeling man, and beneath the rough exterior of the western ranger there runs as deep a stream of true humanity as can be found anywhere on the American continent. Every suggestion was offered, and every effort was put forth, which heart-feeling chained to anxiety and the terrible necessity could offer. Every remedy which promised a good result was duly weighed, and, if pronounced worthy of trial, it was adopted. The sufferer had kind, though rough, nurses, but the absence of scientific skill under such emergency proved a sad want for the unfortunate man. Notwithstanding their united efforts, Broder's arm grew alarmingly worse. It soon became manifest to all that he must part with his arm, or lose his life perhaps both. At this critical period, a consultation was held, in which the suffering patient joined. Due deliberation was extended to all the symptoms. The giving of advice in such a council by men who could only give judgment from an imaginary standpoint must strike the heart of true sympathy, as having been painful in no ordinary degree. After every possible argument had been offered in favour of saving the arm, the final decision of the council was that it must come off. The next difficulty which presented itself was quite as formidable as the expression of a correct judgment. Who should perform the office of surgeon? Was the knotty question. Again the consultations became exciting and intensely painful. The members of the council, however, took it upon themselves to designate the persons, and chose Carson with two others. These immediately set to work to execute their sad but necessary task. The arrangements were all hastily but carefully made, and the cutting began. The instruments used were a razor, an old saw, and, to arrest the hemorrhage, the king bolt taken from one of the wagons was heated and applied to serve as an actual cautery. The operation, rudely performed, with rude instruments, by unpractised hands, excited to action only by the spur of absolute necessity, proved, nevertheless, entirely successful. Before the caravan arrived at Santa Fe, the patient had so far recovered that he was able to take care of himself. Besides this unfortunate affair, 
nothing worthy of note transpired beyond the general record of their route during the remainder of their journey the latter would be too voluminous for the general reader and has already served its purpose as an assistant to other exploring parties both from published account and conversational directions the party entered santa fe in the month of november very soon after kit carson left his companions and proceeded to fernandez de taos a mexican town which lies about eighty miles to the northeast of the capital of new mexico during the winter that followed his arrival in the territory of new mexico kit lived with an old mountaineer by the name of king cade who very kindly offered him a home it was at this period of his life that he commenced studying the spanish language his friend king cade became his assistant in this task at the same time kit neglected no opportunity to learn all he could about the rocky mountains he little thought then that these earth-formed giants were to become his future home and so gloriously to herald the name throughout the entire civilized globe the pinching effects of want now attacked poor kit he could obtain no employment his expectations in this respect as well as his earnest efforts received so little encouragement that he began finally to despond extreme poverty is a wet damper on the fires of the best genius but as was the case with kit it does not effectually put it out kit saw with sorrow that he must retrace his steps to obtain means to carry out his ardent desires in the spring of eighteen twenty seven he started on a backward trip to missouri every step he took in this direction was accompanied with such displeasure that had it not been his best and surest policy he would have mastered any difficulties of another and better course had such offered four hundred and fifty miles from santa fe being about one half the distance across the prairies had been accomplished by the party kit had joined for this homeward trip the fording of the arkansas river had been reached here kit's party met with some traders bound for new mexico they offered him employment which he gladly accepted and in their company retraced his steps back to santa fe but when arrived at santa fe kit found himself again without money he was afforded an opportunity to obtain a wardrobe but to the mountaineer such property would be entirely a superfluity he feels nearly independent on the score of clothing as he considers that he needs but little raiment and that little he is always proud to owe to his beloved rifle this brings to his hand buckskins in plenty and his own ingenuity is the fashion plate by which they are manufactured into wearable and comfortable vesture there is one article of clothing however for which the frontiersman feels an ardent predilection it is a woolen shirt this article kit really needed and in equal pace with his necessity ran his anxiety that something should offer by which to obtain one the reader may smile at this and so does kit at this day as he recounts the fact in his own inimitable style but kit says that to obtain a woolen shirt then was to him no laughing matter at a moment when he almost despaired of gaining employment he received an offer to go as a teamster with an expedition bound to el paso this opportunity was a chance for success not to be lost and he closed with the proposition after faithfully performing his engagement he however returned to santa fe where he made a short stay 
and then proceeded to Taos. In this town, Kit entered into the service of Mr. Ewing Young, who was a trader and trapper. The reader may prepare again for a smile, as he will now learn that Kit became a cook. Mr. Ewing Young has the satisfaction of boasting that the renowned Kit Carson once performed the responsible and arduous duties of a master cook in the culinary department of his establishment, and that, for these valuable services, labor, care, and diligence, he gave to Kit, as a quid pro quo, his board. In this way, Kit supported himself in his straitened circumstances until the following spring. What was the bright thought which made the bold, the ardent, the energetic Kit Carson accept this menial office? Surely the brain metal, which was so brightly polished when he set out from Howard County, Missouri, must have been sadly rusted. Not so. The hope which buoyed up his spirits while he attempted to rival French pastry and English beef with American venison and buffalo meat on the table of Mr. Ewing Young was that some trapper or hunter would come into Taos, their favorite place of resort, and, by being ready for an emergency, he would obtain an opportunity for gaining a permission to join them. His intention was certainly good, but it lacked the bright crown of good intention, success. In the spring of 1828, much chagrined with his so far continued bad luck, and no prospect of gaining his object appearing, he again joined a homeward-bound party, and with it sorrowfully started for Missouri. But, as on the former trip homeward, he met on the route a party bound for Santa Fe. That indomitable ingredient in his composition, an iron will, caused him once more to turn his face westward. He joined this party and returned to Santa Fe, in order again to tempt fortune for an opportunity to reach the Rocky Mountains. But during all these changes and counter-changes, Kit had not been idle. He had picked up considerable knowledge, and, to his other stock of accomplishments, had added the ability to speak the Spanish language. On arriving once more at Santa Fe, he fell in with Colonel Trammell, who was, at that time, a well-known trader. Colonel Trammell needed a Spanish interpreter. Kit obtained the post, and set out with him for Chihuahua, one of the Mexican states. Here again, Kit made a change in his employment. In Chihuahua, he fell in with Mr. Robert McKnight. To him, he hired out as a teamster, and in this capacity went to the copper mines, which are found near to the Rio Gila. Amid the weary necessities of this humble but honorable calling, Kit's heart was constantly alive with ambition to become a hunter and trapper. He knew that he was expert with the rifle, which had been his boyish toy, and felt confident that he could rely upon it as an assistant to gain an honest living. His constant thought at this time was, let him now be engaged in whatever calling chance offered, and necessity caused him to accept. The final pursuit of his life would be as a hunter and trapper. Here, then, is presented a fair example of the strife, both inward and outward, through which a young man of courage and ambition must expect to pass, before he can win position, influence, and the comforts of life, whatever the scene of his action, and whatever the choice of employment suitable to his talent and genius. Kit Carson was determined, no matter what might be the obstacles which presented themselves, to be a hunter and trapper. The reader will have made a sad mistake if he has concluded 
that during the time which has intervened since Kit started from Missouri, he has been roaming in a country where there was less danger than when he was in the picketed fort with his father. Such a supposition would be greatly at fault. The towns in New Mexico at this early period were almost entirely at the mercy of the Indians. The Mexicans were nearly destitute of means to defend themselves. Very few of the Anglo-Saxon race had entered this territory, and those who had were, in turn, exposed to the vacillating wills of the proverbially treacherous Mexicans. A man like Kit Carson, however, born and bred in danger, cared but little about this state of affairs. The dangers did not enter into his calculations of chance to overcome the difficulties which beset the pathway which the alluring hopes of his ambition had marked out. Not long afterward, he left the copper mines, and once more bent his steps to Taos, in company with a small party. At Taos, he found a band of trappers, which had been sent out by Mr. Ewing Young. While en route for the river Colorado, of the west, in pursuit of game, they had been attacked by a band of Indians. After fighting an entire day, they had been compelled to retreat and returned to New Mexico. End of chapter 1